so much ground to cover, but if we do it in chronological order, do you want to start by um, kicking it all the way back to teaching English in Honduras and how that was for you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so that was just before we met. Um, so I went to Honduras uh, to Cofradia. It's a, a small town next to San Pedro Sula. And um, yeah, just I, I came there through Workaway. Uh, and, and just as the school year started, I would teach a few months just before going diving. And uh, it, it all started really hectic. Like before the school year actually properly started, uh, we had this uh, thing called Kinder Camp. And that's where all the upcoming children uh, that, that were about to start school for the first time, they would learn how to be in school. Um, so they're all like three, four year olds and we need to teach them to, you know, stay in their seats and that they're going to be in school and mommy or daddy is not going to be there for a few hours until we say they can go and, and mommy or daddy comes pick, uh, and picks them up. Um, so that was, I mean, some kids, they were like, yeah, bye mom, bye dad, fuck all of y'all. And, and I, they were just going to have fun. like. They definitely had older siblings and they knew like, oh, they, they like school and they, they just, they were like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm independent. I'm, I'm big. Look at me. Um, but some of them were just bawling their eyes out. Um, and I remember the first day, like there was this one kid, he was really dramatic. Like he just would not stop crying. And <laughs> at one point. Uh, one of the other volunteers, like he figured out that if we would just hold him, like carry him, he stopped crying. So we're like, all right, you know, um, let's uh, that 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 works. So it was his turn for a while, and then eventually they were even just walking around hand in hand, and and he was sniffling a bit, but he 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 wasn't really crying. And then later that day, he was crying again. So I figured, all right, whatever, guess it's my turn. So I picked him up and we're walking around for just a little bit. And then at one point, I just feel my T-shirt, just a warmth spreading from the place where I was holding the kid. So he just wet his pants and, and peed all over my T-shirt. Oh, you're like, you're like <laughs> piggybacking him kind of thing. Yeah, I'm just holding him in my in my arms, uh, just just on my chest, and suddenly, just I'm I'm just covered in piss. Oh, it's funny when you imagine <laughs> doing like an English teaching exchange. It's I feel like it's the little things that um, you can't prepare for, the little things you can't plan for that you're gonna end up remembering. I mean, that was absolutely an opening. Um, so I just hand off the kid. I was like, all right, you know, fuck this. Uh, this is this is a bit much. Uh, just gonna gonna wash up but no those kids they were they were nice uh, there was there was one one little girl as well we we called her like a, an agent of chaos she was just she loved creating chaos she would thrive on it like she would just walk up to some people playing like steal a toy and then blame it on someone else and walk away as they start fighting like she would just create their own drama everywhere and just with a mischievous smile just enjoying every moment but that was only one week 
Um, and then uh, we like the the school really started, and we got into our proper classes. And I, like I really enjoyed that a lot because I got the the two oldest grades. Uh, so that's grade ten, eleven, fifteen to seventeen years old. Mm-hmm. It was like elementary school and high school was was combined. Um, and what I really liked about those kids is their English was good enough to to have a conversation. And like that's um, for them. A, 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 a goal in life is uh, like work in a call center. Like that for them is a good job in Honduras. Like mm-hmm. we can look at it with you know our, our European viewpoint and be like you know reach for the stars. But that for them is a, a good wage that that does allow them to to it, it opens up more possibilities for them. Uh, so that's really uh, something I, I was trying to um, to help with to to help them reach that. Uh, but you know, I, I could I, I had quite a lot of liberty uh, on how I would fill the, the curriculum. Uh, so I really just enjoyed addressing social issues as well. Um, like we would have debates with with all the kids about. Uh, if if uh, what, what they think of, of gay marriage, if that should be legalized, if all drugs should be legalized, if euthanasia should be should be legal, um, we would listen to to TED talks um, of like that's great, so they could learn uh, listening to different accents as well. So like uh, Greta was was one of the the TED talks that I played like. Her, her English is, is great, especially for you know a, a young kid. I mean, she's Scandinavian, of course. She's has amazing English. Yeah, I know. Um, but but she's got a bit of an accent, so especially for you know in in, in Nicaragua there or in Honduras. I mean, they're they're not that used to, to an accent like that. Mm-hmm. So we really got involved in the social issues, and I really like that. Just the the debates and actually you know talking about how they see the world and really helping them uh, apply critical thinking and not just blindly follow. Like I I wanted to have them do their own research before debates and and actually, you know, make them think about what they're saying instead of just parroting their parents. That's really cool. That's on so many levels. There's so much to think about there. It might've been the first time that I've ever been exposed to such dialogue with, you know, for some of them at least, but the critical thinking thing as well, it's um, something that I think is actually going a little bit on the wayside in terms of education, especially with rote learning um, and computerization as well, you know, complete task A in this amount of time or rote remember this and rewrite it. But critical thinking is essentially problem solving. It's, uh, It's so many other things and that's like an important asset within itself, but there's no class on critical thinking. But to introduce that to a bunch of Honduran kids doing an English exchange is really cool because like I said you might have well been the first ones to incite those thoughts and patterns within them and that's really interesting as well because that's a different form of of teaching and actually one of the questions I'd written down here was um did you have imposter syndrome and what I mean by that is being someone who is European coming into like a Honduran school and teaching them English and being like hey this is English this is a global language 
did you felt like it took time for them to accept you or were they accepting of you straight away like this is the teacher um i mean it 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 uh, like the the classes i had like the the 10th and 11th grade they were great kids um 11th grade is uh not mandatory in in Honduras mm-hmm. so it was a lot smaller like like half the people left after 10th grade um so uh that that was a pretty small group but no like w- w- like i had done english tutoring before uh when i was in in high school and university just to to earn some extra money i would tutor people um so um i felt somewhat comfortable you know explaining english uh, grammar and, and stuff like that i didn't feel um uh, too too weird doing that but of course standing in front of you know 30 kids is, is yeah. quite different uh opposed to you know just teaching one-on-one Absolutely. but no the, the kids were were great they they really like they they wanted to be there like if i remember my high school we were we were little twats like we 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 were assholes to to the teachers like we we were just talking all the time not paying attention but no these kids they they were great they really just wanted to learn and they were so engaged and yeah i i had a lot of time or a lot of fun uh in my time with them um but yeah like fifth grade for example i remember them they were just loud and screaming and i think like i i had to teach them for a little bit because no other teachers uh, the normal teacher wasn't available and I, I sent like maybe half the class to the headmaster's office because they were just misbehaving all, all the time oh, geez, but, going back to what you said about um the kids really listening and being attentive and stuff a similar pattern sort of happens in australia i think you know you go through the formative years early high school, seven, eight and nine, grade seven, eight, nine, I should say, which is, you know, 13, 14 and 15 years old. And you've got all this energy, you're a teenager, you know, everything's happening all at once. You're starting to maybe learn to drive and people are starting to um, play sport really well and people are going to parties and blah, blah, blah. And the last thing you can think about is school because school just seems like this byproduct where it's taking all the time away from you where you want to do other things. And then the pendulum, yeah, yeah. the pendulum sort of swings back the other way as you get a bit older. And maybe that's the same with the grade 11s because you start to realize, oh, school is, um, you know, I get to be at school. I'm with all my friends. This is where I want to be. But school is right now um, going to push me into something later in life. or It's important for me right now for later in life. Or if it's not important, I can choose to leave. So it tends to wean out the people that are, um, I guess, it just seems to be a bit of a commonality, you know, when you're in those younger teen years, you're a bit, everyone's a bit more rowdy and talks a bit more and coming into greater love. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, like, I mean, when when they hit the, the stride of puberty, like, of course they're going to be difficult to handle. That's just yeah. part of the deal. Um, and yeah, that, that definitely helped that I got the age group that had kind of passed that point already. Um, and I also really just try to treat them like adults, like, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 17, they, they were about to leave school and, and, you know, they, they had to make their own way after that. So might as well just start treating them like adults and, and yeah, just give them 
a bit more independence and, and trust that they can do that. Totally. I, and of yeah. course, you know, they, they, they would mess around still a bit and they wouldn't always listen. Like, what, one thing I would do is, um, uh, like, on, on Friday, the last two hours, just before the weekend started, I would have both classes combined. So then I would have 50 kids just before the weekend starts. Like, that's, uh, you can't handle that. Like, that's just going to be one ball of energy. Mm -hmm. um, so during the week, I would just note how many times they spoke Spanish in class, which wasn't allowed. Um, and then the group that spoke the least Spanish got to choose which movie we were watching Friday afternoon. Oh, so it was cool. it would keep them motivated and also like it would pit both both classes against each other um so that worked pretty well that is a really good idea um another question i was going to ask you there's already there's so many questions floating around my head already for anyone that's never done like a work away or an english teaching exchange i'm sure they've got a million other questions you know what's it like how do you organize it how do you find out where to go blah 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 um but one of the questions i really wanted to ask was as the teacher you're teaching them but did they teach you anything yeah i mean it, it definitely like it, what for me was really the the uh, main thing that that i learned i think is just you know you you can't come in there and just force your perspective on on those kids you know you like i can't just uh, waltz in there and, and teach them the same way I would teach European kids and just not I, I wanted to engage with them and I mm -hmm. wanted to um, to to just talk because that's the best way to practice language to just use it and I, I wanted them to be engaged and so I needed to yeah just connect with them and you you can't do that if you just don't don't open yourself up to them. Mm. And yeah, it's it's. I mean, the the town where we lived, like there was one paved road in the entire town. Like it it was quite quite a different experience. Like I mean, us as the the foreign teachers, like we we also got kind of famous in town. Like we could just step into a tuk tuk. And we didn't even need to say where we would go. Like, the entire town knew where the foreigner house was. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Sounds like a scene for a little movie or something. Yeah. I mean, that, that's probably also why we got robbed. Like, everyone knew, like, that's where the rich foreigners live. <laughs> well, that was the other question I was going to ask. So, we're not about being robbed, um, which let's definitely touch on that. But... Something I was going to ask was before you went to Honduras, did you have a stigma or an idea of um, Honduras and what it would be like to teach there before you went? Like thinking, oh, it's going to be a bit dangerous or it's going to be um, quite impoverished or I'm not going to have enough resources to teach or what was some stigmas you had before going to Honduras, if you had any? I mean, like I, I had lived in Mexico before. Um, and of course, Mexico compared to Central America, it's it's a lot more developed and a lot more Western as well. Um, yeah, definitely. Like I, I I say, Mexico like bridges between Central America and the States. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, from a European perspective, I, I 
the states isn't as as developed as, as like there there's still Mexico like matches with with the healthcare and all that stuff, but just the the infrastructure in Central America is very basic. Um, but like this teaching, I wasn't really I didn't plan it that far ahead um, because first I was traveling with a friend. Like I just finished my uh, university minor in in Mexico somewhere, and then after that, a Dutch friend came and visited. And we were traveling through Guatemala and then Honduras. Like, actually, I did a little bit of diving with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just did uh, our open water course together. And while I was in Honduras, the coordinator from the school messaged me on Workway, like, hey, you seem like a great fit. Uh, do you want to come teach him for a little while? Wow, that's cool. Um, you were headhunted by the best. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, and I was like, is- oh, yeah, like, I, I didn't have anything planned, so I figured, yeah, that, that'll be cool. Um, I'll go and do that. And, no, I mean, I, I wasn't too worried about uh, it being poor or, or dangerous or something. Like, I mean, if you look at, like, in San Pedro Sula, which was really close to, to Cofradia, where I was teaching, it, it used to be known as the murder capital of the world. And... The, the Dutch friend I was traveling with, he was, uh, in the beginning, he, he was a bit uh, scared or, or at least very cautious. Like, he didn't really want to go to that city because of its reputa- reputation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, now if you look at the, the most dangerous cities in the world, like six in the top ten are in Mexico. And I love being in Mexico. I, I generally feel very safe there like just don't fuck around with the cartels but yeah i was i was surprised i've also been to mexico and i was very surprised as well i actually really that's one of the things i loved most about mexico was it was kind of like a halfway point like it had new hospitals it had good roads the buses were pretty modern um the streets were were clean in places but it it didn't feel like this overdeveloped like crazy neon lights and skyscrapers it was kind of like up and coming and it was like this weird transitional state of like you said it wasn't it's not as developed or i guess the other word you could use for developed is modernized as like america or perhaps european countries but i liked that i liked that you could still have let's say for example street vendors selling fruit on the street in australia you can't oh man that's the best yeah like i of just in Mexico, like you just buy a cup of mango with chili. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just... But in Australia, if you wanted to just open a, we'll use taco stand or a quesadilla stand as in Mexico, it's as simple as the the local says, okay, I'm going to buy a little cart. Every afternoon after four, I'm going to go to this beach and make tacos for however many pesos. And they just sell them and it's perfect because everyone knows, oh, the taco guy will be there or the quesadilla lady will be there. You just know you can go for a surf or you can go to the beach and come back and grab one of these. But in, in Australia, if you wanted to do that, you'd need a permit, you'd need a uh, food handling license, you'd need a chemical handling license, you'd need a small business license, you would need a local government, like, um, you know, another permit to just be able to say that you're going to yeah. take up this square footage of space and sell tacos. And I get it, like, that's how we keep things, you know, the machine running smooth over here. But I like how they had a different style to things in Mexico. It was like a meeting between the two, and I love that. And India was a little bit the same in, in in a lot of ways, I thought. But um, back to um, back yeah, to the... it's, just, it's 
it's a bit more of a lawless country. A little bit, yeah, but it it works, and I like that as well. Um, back to the so back to the teaching English. They've asked you to come down. You've obviously accepted. You hadn't really planned to go, um, and your parents obviously know you're in Honduras at this stage, and now we've worked through the idea that you know you're not as stigmatized by the danger of the place because you're there. When you rock up to this small little town and you realize what it's like to be teaching there, how did you feel? What were your, what thoughts are running through your mind? And and did you know at that stage you were going to be there for you know a month or more? Yeah, like I, I I understand with teaching. Like, of course, it's not gonna help the kids if they have a new teacher every week. Um, so I had committed for for uh, two months, more or less. Like the exact time wasn't very um, worked out, but like more or less for the rest of my visa. Because mm-hmm. uh, after that, we did a, a visa run, and then I went to Utila. Um, so yeah like i i knew i was going to be staying for a little while um and yeah it it was definitely an an experience like what also really surprised me like um it it was a bit of a a bit of a shift like the year before there had been a lot of teachers with uh, a lot of experience that had been there previous years and that had done a lot more uh, international voluntary teaching stuff like that mm-hmm. but this year there was just one the coordinator she had been there a few months before the, the year before mm-hmm. and that's it like besides that everyone was new there was just a, a big lack of experience the coordinator she was uh, coordinating for the first time and she was definitely I wouldn't say she was the right fit for the job, but someone had to do it. And, you know, it it just, it was passed on to her and and she took up that mantle Um, and and she really tried. And she, like what I really appreciated, she was very open with us about how she was uh, struggling with it. And, you know, then because uh, I've had other volunteer coordinators that are just a struggling mess, but instead of being open and, and sharing that with us, mm-hmm. they would just lash out. Um, so while she wasn't the best fit, um, I, I, I appreciated how she approached it. Yeah, um, it's, it's, I guess, looking at it like from an objective point of view. So for, for me, for example, who's not in that situation, it would be like getting handed over a business that's, let's say, a business that's failing and going under, and someone's just like, well, here you go, like, and just hands you the chalice and says, hey, can you fix this? But instead of it being a business, it's she's obviously taken on this job of trying to, you know, coordinate the school and a failing business. Yeah, is like, probably a bad example, but she's taken on this completely new role where she's, you know, new to the environment and she's got all these things happening at once and the kids are trying to learn English and the school's perhaps a little bit underfunded. You know, there's one paved road in the town, as you said. Now there's volunteers pouring in and there's so many moving parts. And I think it would almost be human to expect that anyone would struggle under that workload. Especially. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of pressure. Like totally. with a business, you could say oh, well, we fail, we declare bankruptcy, so be it. But you can't do that with those kids. Like, you've got a massive responsibility. Exactly. Um, And, and yeah, there there were a lot of other issues as well. Like, uh, as as I mentioned before, like someone broke into our house. So 
then we were we needed to get moved to a different house with better security and just a lot of uh, obstacles that that she needed to deal with and uh, another really surprising thing to me like um, it, it was a a, a split uh, school kind of like the, half the classes were taught in Spanish just normal curriculum and then the other half in English and it kind of depended on the age but usually like social sciences um, math and physics and English was taught in English mm-hmm. and the rest was in, in Spanish um, some stuff like sex ed also fell upon the, the volunteer teachers because Honduran teachers, they're a bit more conservative, so they figured it's, it's better for the volunteers to do that. Mm-hmm. But the well, thing you know, is, like, I don't know if you know this, Yellow, but the Dutch like sex education program is like world renowned for being really progressive and really open and outspoken, even compared to Australia. I'm not sure if you know that, but yeah, like I, I did some research uh, before teaching sex ed there. Um, yeah, apparently uh, we we do pretty well uh, with very low teen pregnancies because um, we're very very open about it. Like to me, it's super normal that um, you know when when I got a girlfriend when I was sixteen, like I would just talk about that with my parents, and I can talk about them or, or talk with them about sex and, and stuff like that. We're we're pretty all pretty open um, and I think that's super important like if if you hide it and if you go and be sneaky then <laughs> yeah I guess every that, country that has a, doesn't work yeah every country has a different approach so and that's what I'm, I'm saying and it was a would have been a pretty interesting meeting of ideas for European curriculum compared to Honduran curriculum and yeah it seems like you guys took on a lot it's it's impressive you know from physics to sex ed it's you're covering pretty much everything. Oh, I mean, sex ed was so much fun. It just all these kids being super awkward talking about sex, and just me and another teacher, we were just having a blast. Like looking at all these kids being like super oh. socially awkward, not, not knowing how to Mate, I uh, present in, themselves. I remember in like PE, like fitness class. You know, when you're young enough, like if you're in grade eight. And they ask you to partner up with a girl, and your hands would just be sweating. Like <laughs> it was so. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember that stuff? And they're like, "No, why is a teacher making us do school dance of everything?" And they're like, "Okay, you know, run up and." Oh yeah. So everything. I, I remember like, or yeah. we're at like school parties, like slow dancing. That's what oh, I mean. Man, yeah. That was. It's a train the most wreck, stressful isn't it? shit ever. It's a train wreck. Yeah. Okay, so let's yeah. move on. Like um. Because this is only one chapter of an amazing time you had in South America, the um, the teaching English. You went on to brew beer. So you went on to brew this. I love this, Yella. I absolutely love this because <laughs> I, I know you personally and I know how calculated and, and you are an engineer at heart, you know. Um, and I can only imagine you just tinkering away behind the scenes, almost like a mad scientist cooking up some <laughs> insane ingredients. But walk me through. It, it how... kind of felt like that sometimes. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I, I want to know. So, so walk me through the transition. So, you've wrapped up your time teaching, and how do you find yourself brewing beer in Honduras? Well, this was so after teaching, mm-hmm. I went to Utila. That's we we spent two months together diving there which was an absolute blast and just 
a, a blur of just crazy, crazy experiences, just all smushed together. Um, a lot of partying and diving. But the downside of partying and diving is that um, my bank account didn't really appreciate it. So uh, then uh, after leaving Honduras, I, I went to Nicaragua and I figured I needed some money. And, uh, you know, I am uh, I already graduated as an engineer, but that's not a job I can just pick up for two months and then leave. Like that's usually they want some longer project and, mm -hmm. and just getting used to the job and, and just, uh, you know, settling in. It, it takes a lot more time. So I wasn't going to look for a job in that. But I had also spent four years during university learning how to brew beer just as a, a hobby, a side activity. Uh, nothing official curriculum, just that's that's something we we do in the Netherlands, because why not, right? Uh, we're very proud of our beer. Um, well, not Heineken, but we make really good beer as well. And <laughs> so I, I just send a message to uh, all the breweries I could find. <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're, you're reaching, I know exactly what you're saying about, yeah, you can't, you're essentially, it's a career professional job being an engineer. It's very hard to just land and be like, hey, can I have a job for two months? And they're like, ah, oh, there's so, yeah. much, so much going on here. So you're now looking for beer brewing companies because you have the brewing experience. And you're in, sorry, I said before you're in Honduras, but you're in Nicaragua at this stage. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just left Honduras after after diving. Um, so yeah, I, I sent a message to a lot of breweries just on Facebook. And, you know, not surprising, most of them just have their business running and they're like, all right, some some wacko backpackers messaging me, whatever. They just ignored it. Um, but there was this one brewery. They responded. They, they were keen for someone with more experience. Um, so they responded that they could not offer me a job, but I could brew some beers with them. So I figured, all right, what the heck? I'll just go and have a look. Uh, so I went there and we, we talked a bit. I, I made a beer. And um, then they were like, all right, you know, we, we really appreciate that you do have a lot of, of knowledge and we would like to keep you. Um, so then they did actually offer me a job. Because, like, at the start, they just gave me all, all, all the beers that they had. And they're like, all right, what's your opinion? And I was like, it's kind of shit. Like that, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's quite something to just trust walk a, in trust a Dutchman tell to tell it to you straight. That's brutal. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's also Dutch culture. Like, we're very direct. Um, we we no tend kidding. to be seen as, as rude. <laughs> but yeah, like it. it and was they gave this, you a job this... after that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jeez, Louise, mate, you must have really been. You must have really been selling yourself well after that one. Gosh. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, you know, at least, you know, talk to talk, right? Make them think you, you know what you're doing because I hadn't proven myself yet. Um, but no, like it was this rich lawyer. He had put his 20-year-old kid in charge of, of the brewery. He just started the brewery because his friends wanted to. Um, and, you know, they're, they were both Americans. And, and you know, so this kid wasn't even allowed to buy beer back home you know and mm. 20 years old like that that's they can't even drink in the states um 
they had no idea what they were doing. It, w- it was just getting recipes from the internet, and it was all just kind of very basic and and he didn't have any of the knowledge what he was doing he was just chucking stuff together and, and seeing what would come out um which so is, i really which in some just ways is a fun process though it's kind of you know you're in that creative artistic phase of just the shiny new thing you want to play with all the time okay let's see what beers we can cook up with too much of this or too much of that so i kind of do oh. actually understand that but i also understand that there needs to be a professionalism and a and a a goal in mind for where to take the beer brand. So when you came in and you were saying, hey, you, you want to make improvements, what was the first thing that you sought to improve? Was it flavor? Was it part of the brewing process? Was it the alcoholic content? Was it marketing? Like, what did you see that you wanted to make the biggest impact in? Yeah, so um, I, I just started with writing new recipes and just um, uh, brewing, uh, like, one thing I put a bit more focus on is, is hygiene. Like, if you don't make sure everything is really clean, you can get some some off-flavor things uh, in your beer. Um, but mostly just writing new recipes. Uh, and then just um, also convincing them that some recipes are just a bit more expensive. Uh, and Because and hops are, are pretty expensive, but they, they add great flavor. Um, mm-hmm. and just uh, making sure that you work meticulously and because like I, I absolutely love the experimenting part and a lot of the stuff that I wrote was you know trying something new as well but to do something like that you do need a, a basic understanding so you can somewhat know what to expect and and you have some kind of expectation what's going to change if you tweak different settings of your brewing mm-hmm. like if you put something a, a few temperatures ho- a few degrees higher or or if you keep it at a higher temperature for a bit longer like if you have no idea what's going to happen there are so many different variables that you just have no idea what's going to come out mm. I uh, like so it- you do need to have an understanding I feel like it's almost like baking a cake in a lot of ways. It's like you need the eggs, the flour, the yeast, maybe some sugar, maybe some salt. How hot do you put it on? How long do you put it on? Do you add butter? Do you grease the pan? I know it's a weird analogy, but I get what you're saying about you. No, tweak, but absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Tweak, it's yeah. it's very much like cooking. You just follow the recipe, and if you follow it well, you, you should get a good beer. Yeah. So you're working in the brewery at this stage. You've now... Your South America trip has taken you through a teaching, two months teaching. You've been diving for two months. You're a graduated dive master, which is an accolade a lot of people strive for within itself. And now you're working in a brewery. And what's the first um, beer that you managed to brew? What's the first thing that came off the batch? The first cab off the ranks? Um, Because, like, uh, I was brewing for Americans and also the place where I was brewing was a bit of a an American colony, so to speak, like a, a walled off settlement on the beach, uh, one of the best surfing spots in Nicaragua, like all the Americans would just fly in and, and just go and surf there. So I figured, you know, these Americans, they, they like American things. So I made an American beer. I made a, a New England IPA, a bit hazy, very hoppy. Um, based on, on some old recipe I, I had laying around from university. 
Um, and it was really popular. But then, like, I, I, after I had established myself a little bit, I started experimenting a bit more. And I figured, you know, all these ingredients need to be imported from the States. That mm-hmm. makes them super expensive. So I wanted to use some local ingredients that we could just buy at the market. So I made a, a an ale with a lot of pineapple, like a Whoa, lot. cool. Like in uh, in a, a twenty gallon ferment, we would put like eight to ten kilos of fresh pineapple, and it's got a ton of sugar in it as well, which would all ferment and it would just add a lot of flavors and and smell, um, and it's super cheap. Like pineapples, there they cost next to nothing. Mm. Like for for a dollar, you get a, a, a several pineapples. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? To think when you, when you reverse the tables, because pineapple would be in Australia and America, it's quite expensive comparatively for the weight. But down there, you can actually use pineapples to brew beer. I mean, that's awesome. And how is the end result? Yeah, like it, it's cheaper than actually using grain. Mm. Because the, the grain, like that's cheap as shit in the states. They they feed it to cattle. But importing it to, to Nicaragua made it a bit more expensive. Mm-hmm. So what's so? How did the pineapple beer taste? Oh, it was great. It was very, very dry, high carbonation, slightly sour, like citrusy sour, and just a, a smell of pineapple, mm. and just very refreshing. Like I. I wrote the recipe with the thought in mind like so you're you're surfing all day it's you know 30 35 degrees it's hot you want something nice and refreshing so what are you gonna get nice pineapple beer even when you're saying aroma that does actually yeah it resonates with me um i know what you're saying it's like the corona for example has a distinct smell or certain beers have it heineken as well actually certain beers have a distinct smell and i feel like to get that pineapple scent would just be an extra little um, cherry on top, so to speak. It's just a good seller as well. So how long were you at the working at the brewery? Was that also a long process and something that you wanted to see out? And, and when you did leave, how did you know it was time to leave? What signs or what made you want to leave? Yeah, so I think the, the plan was that I would leave at the end of March. Uh, so then I would have been there like three and a half months. Um, because like, but ne- besides brewing, I also uh, tried my hand at surfing there. Um, when I arrived, I had very little experience in, in surfing. Um, I still wouldn't say I'm I'm a good surfer, but I, I've got a bit more experience at least. Uh, I just borrowed a, a surfboard from my boss, and just every day I would just look at the tide, and you know if there was good tide in the morning, I'd go brew beer in the afternoon, or the other way around. But, um, you know, then... <laughs> That's the true then Central... The work that is the true... Sorry, mate. That is the true Central American lifestyle, isn't it? Go for a surf <laughs> in the morning and brew a beer in the afternoon. What a... You've been on a quite incredible backpacker journey. But yeah, sorry to interrupt. Continue. Uh, it, so you're still brewing beers. Yeah. And it, what tells you that you're ready to, um, ready to move on? Well, yeah. So March 2020, um, quite a lot of stuff happened at uh, that time of year. Um, actually, I, I went back to, to the Netherlands in, in February. Uh, my, my grandma passed away. I, I went back for the funeral. And just like two weeks 
after I came back to Nicaragua, the, the, the entire world went into lockdown. Mm, this is the pandemic, so suddenly, actually. yeah, suddenly all the borders closed and like Nicaragua, it's a dictatorship. It's a, a bit of a complex situation and, and I don't know all the ins and outs and, and like, of course, I, I heard many stories from local friends uh, that they were like clandestine uh, horses walking uh, driving around at night in the capital, just collecting all the bodies. Um, I have no proof of this. This is just hearsay. Um, but yeah, like they, they were denying that, that COVID existed uh, in Nicaragua and all the neighboring countries, they did acknowledge it and they closed all the borders and all the the airlines they refused to land in Nicaragua so suddenly I was out of options um, so I just stayed with the brewery and, and continued working there but it, of course you know it, it, we made beer and we served food so mm. obviously not long after we, we closed down as well um, so yeah then I, I well I still spent some time surfing, but without a, a job, there was a bit less to do. Um, and it just a little bit before it had already become time to move on because I loved the experimenting of the brewing beer, writing new recipes, trying out new stuff, seeing how popular it is, how well it sells and, and just uh, uh, selling, like doing the, the marketing bit. But at one point, we had like four beers that everyone was really happy with. They sold well. The owner just wanted us to go into production mode and mm. produce a lot of beer yeah. instead of trying out new stuff. And that's just a lot less interesting. Yeah. Um, it's just doing the same thing over and over. So um, in a way, you'd help them transition from that early phase of, as we said before, like trial and error, creativity into that stable like homeostasis where they wanted to be, where they had a few like name brand bottles or um you know a few home brews that they were content with that they wanted to sort of pump out and get out the doors so now they've got their feet on the yeah. ground and and yeah like before they the the other restaurants in that same colony they didn't sell their beer because they didn't like it mm -hmm. and you know at the point that i left like our beers were in in most of the stores and most of the restaurants like I actually, I had some friends working at the beach club there and they were asking for our beer, even though they didn't have any. So then they came to us and they were like, all right, people are, are asking at the bar for your beer. So can we have your beer so we can sell it? Um, wow. Yeah, it's just such a... So yeah, they, no, no, please they, they had established themselves a bit more, but it was just, yeah, the, 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 the novelty. Had, had faded yeah and like you were saying before you weren't there to as with the engineering you weren't really there to to make a career it was just a, a path and a stepping stone in your journey through south america which in itself is as i said quite unique you know not a lot of people manage to squeeze out so much in-depth experience it's one thing to be a backpacker and you know have a bag on your back and be frivolous and have no plans and you know there's no grass growing on your feet you're always moving and it's great it's amazing you meet lots of people but it's also another thing to where those two worlds combine where you're being a backpacker you're being a traveler but you're also staying in one place for a time and working on something and to for someone like you who 
as you were saying, you've managed to teach at a school by this stage. You've got your dive master, and now you've been brewing beers. It is quite incredible, and it's like it's really cool to look back on, as obviously for you, but even as an onlooker, and just say like anything really is possible when you go traveling. There's really no make or model that you have to follow when you travel. You can stop and work. You can volunteer. You can learn to surf or learn to dive or learn a language or teach kids or brew beer or whatever you want to do there are so so many options and I feel like that's like why I like this story and why I wanted to to talk to you about it as well and um going on to the last part of the story which you were just touching on there was now you're stuck with COVID and you had to more or less with quotation marks escape um Central America and I was in a similar position I got um uh, stuck. You were in Peru, right? Yeah, I was in Peru, yeah, which was also quite hard to leave. But um, I'm sure I'm not sure if you had the same experience, but so many thoughts were going through my mind in the early stage of the pandemic, which was, um, you know, is this a chance for humanity to sort itself out? Is this a chance for, bless you, is this a chance for um, people to work through their differences? Is the world going to come together and find a cure? But also it was it was like a social experiment for me because in two ways, mostly. I should say three, actually. Firstly, I was watching myself behave in a situation that was being proposed as serious. You know, the pandemic was a big deal. It is a big deal. A lot of people have, you know, it's impacted a lot of lives. But I was watching myself, you know, how am I reacting? Am I overreacting? Am I losing my head? Am I going crazy? Whereas I actually wasn't in, I'm not sure how you were in Nicaragua, but I was pretty chill in Peru. I just wanted to wait it out. And I was trying to be a support for those other backpackers around me and, and people I was with. The second way it was um, a learning lesson was to watch, so firstly, watch my own emotions and behavior. Secondly, to watch other people's emotions and behavior. And um, I think the third way it was a lesson was um, culturally as well. So being in a foreign country, I actually went back to Canada during the pandemic. I'm sure you know about that as well, but that's I'm not going to touch on that. But just watching, <laughs> just watching how two countries behave in a pandemic is because you're watching human behavior and I really loved that and you see that sadly you see the best oh sorry you see the worst come out and but you also see the best but culturally different cultures react different to the pandemic and that you know what does the media have to say about things and and what do people as individuals have to say what is it how is this country going to deal with it how's that country going to do with it um you know a lot of countries have performed well were European countries Nordic countries I don't know. I just, I'd love to know what your experience was being in the pandemic in a foreign country. Like, was it as scary as people thought it might have been? Or were you actually just sort of there to, um, you know, steer the wheel in your own life through the stormy waters and just and ride it out? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was definitely quite a quite an experience and very different from from back home. Because, um, yeah, like in, in the beginning, because I, I was planning on, on traveling for years mm-hmm. so yeah when the news first arrived i was like oh I'll, I'll wait it out it's fine it's gonna be a few months who cares right well and then as the situation developed it became very clear to me that it wasn't gonna be a few months mm-hmm. and and that i could likely be stuck there for a, a very long time mm-hmm. um but yeah as you said like there's a big cultural difference so well, as I already touched upon, it's it was a dictatorship, and you know, saying that they're suffering from uh, a massive pandemic, it, it 
probably they see that as a sign of weakness that they can't deal with that so um, they just denied it and for a lot of locals like the local news it wasn't really a big thing because Mm -hmm. a lot of it is is state controlled as well and when I spoke about it with locals they were like oh no but us Nicaraguan people were strong we're not going to get it and if we get it we're going to be okay because we're very strong we we have this built-in resistance and you know me as a, a uh, I'm I'm pretty um, objective, I, I think, at least in, in stuff like that, or or at least uh, quite a critical thinker. Um, I was not um, too convinced uh, that that just for living in in a certain country gives you better resistance to to a disease. Um, of course, you know, local diseases they will absolutely have better resistance because of exposure. But that's not the case with a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So, um, so which sorry, so, Yellow, which part of Nicaragua yeah. were you stuck in at this point? Where um, were you? Were you near? Yeah, Managua so the, the brewing beer that was on the on the west coast, on mm-hmm. the Pacific coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after a while, as the situation developed and it was clear, I wasn't gonna um, like the brewery wasn't gonna open. I was just stuck there surfing, um, which yeah, at that point I, I kind of new um so then i moved to another workway project a, a ranch in the mountains um a bit closer to to Dunderan border um and yeah like that at the ranch actually they were a bit more careful um and i didn't have too much contact anymore with the the, the local people because we were just a bit more isolated um but yeah, it, it was very different from how they, they approached it. It was a lot more, like some people took it very serious, but the government just absolutely abstained from taking a serious stance. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it was also really frustrating for me having to deal with the Dutch government um, since they, like I was in contact with them. To get, re- uh, to get repatriated? For, to get a flight back, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because like in the beginning, they did a, a big call out, all Dutch people, you know, come back home because there's a pandemic. I ignored that call because I figured I would wait it out. So mm-hmm. that's on me. Um, I, I should have listened or, or, you know, because I didn't, I, I should definitely accept, accept my own responsibility in that. Um, but yeah, we... Uh, uh, I, I I spoke to the government and they told me like oh yeah there's still some people in, in Nicaragua and we're trying to organize a plane to to pick you up and it took many weeks and no action at all and mm. eventually I I heard uh, through my parents that that had been calling around a bit that they weren't doing anything in Nicaragua at all like they just mm-hmm. they weren't bothering to to. Uh, start any repatriation repatriation efforts um, so then it turned into uh, me and, and some Spanish woman we were just trying to gather as many Europeans as we could uh, to actually you know have a, a, a significant mass of people uh, so they would take us seriously um, like she wrote letters to, to Spanish newspapers. We wrote letters to, to different European embassies. 
because usually when there's planes uh, planes just flying through Europe, um, other Europeans could board. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, how did that? Because I know that there was obviously a problem getting back to the Netherlands, but couldn't you have just taken a flight back to Germany or Poland or Belgium or well, England thing, or France? There, there weren't any flights. Like oh, all, all, Nicaragua, all airline yeah. companies, they yeah, they, yeah. they didn't want to land in, in Nicaragua, and um, there was definitely also some some shady stuff going on. Like at one point there was a, uh, I think either a German or a Spanish flight that. Uh, was going to Costa Rica and they wanted to land in Nicaragua as well and pick us up yeah. but the Nicaraguan government didn't allow them to land um, so mm. I have no proof of this whatsoever but it wouldn't surprise me if they just figured look we, we desperately need any kind of, of foreign money flowing into our country so better that the tourists just stay and spend their money um and, and instead of just having them all leave i had a um, similar thing in peru but i'm not sure if it's regarding I, I don't know about if they were trying to keep tourists there or whatever but they literally just had such a harsh lockdown that they closed even the roads and the airports so very similar like planes weren't even allowed to land in peru so to get out was like the very first hurdle is like very hard because it's not about wasn't so much about convincing Australia to send a plane it was more about convincing Peru to let planes land which that took a yeah. long time and um I mean like the situation in Peru that you experienced was like we didn't have a lockdown like in, in okay. Peru you know there there was military on the streets mm-hmm. patrolling for the lockdown right yeah like yeah. we didn't have anything like that mm-hmm. um the the most serious measures that were there was like when I need to get my visa extended, they took my temperature and I was supposed to wear a mask on the bus. Oh, but wow. that was about it. That's very chill. And so when you finally got this plane organized, how did you guys get out of there? So you've got, sorry, we're just running out of time. Yeah, we've only got like four minutes. Yeah, now. yeah, I wanna, yeah, I yeah get no this worries. Amazing, <laughs> amazing story in the end. Um, so you're getting to the end of the, you know, you're trying to convince the Netherlands to send a plane. How did you make that happen, and, and how did that um, more or less quotations again escape play out? Yeah, so it, in the end, it was me, the Spanish woman, and then another. I think it was a, a, a German guy that had some connections as well. Um, so we had a about two hundred Europeans grouped together that that all wanted to fly home, and we couldn't get any European countries to successfully send a plane. Um, but um, somehow we got a Honduran travel agency to charter a plane um, from uh, from Managua to uh, Madrid. Oh wow! And it was super shady. Like no one had heard of the travel agency, and they asked a lot of money, and we all did not know whether to trust it at all. Like going to the airport i still wasn't sure that there was even going to be a plane there you know like i I was only sure we were leaving when i actually saw the plane standing there and we were boarding Um, so how many of you ended up boarding how many many of you ended up getting on the flight together Uh, i mean it was completely full the plane like yeah it it was because we like 
we tried so many different things. Like we were even thinking about like chartering a Cessna to fly to Costa Rica, which technically would have been illegal since Nicaragua didn't allow planes to leave, but we could have just gotten on it and, and tell Nicaragua to get bent. Um, we were looking at a lot of options, but eventually like this was uh, the, the most viable and, and there were just so many people that needed to leave. Um, it's sad because but, for, yeah. for anyone listening, Nicaragua is an absolutely incredible country and it is in no way reflective of, of the people or the nature or the the amazing culture that's there. Um, this side story. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible absolutely. spot. Like, so. I, I had an amazing time in Nicaragua and I, I love the people there. They are incredible and, and super friendly and mm-hmm. so hospitable and uh, I made great friends. Um, but yeah, these these situations are just difficult, and it doesn't always bring out the best in in some people, and especially in, in governments that um, rely on on things like fear to to stay in power. Um, so, but yeah, no, I, I can absolutely recommend Nicaragua as a, a beautiful place to go to. Yeah. Um, so, what was it? But like? yeah. Sorry, what well, I was going to ask finally because we've got three minutes left. What was it like when you landed and you got home and you'd ended this in- incredible journey? Did you have a bit of melancholy and a, a bittersweet feeling that a big chapter of your life was closing, a big adventure? Yeah, it, it was really strange. Like, it, it, I didn't really want to accept it. Um, and it was just difficult to suddenly, you know, flick the switch from backpacking and going somewhere new every few weeks or months or you know traveling around not even knowing where i would sleep that evening to suddenly having to accept that i I should just get a job and get serious and and Mm. leave this part of my my life behind at least for now um so it was a bit difficult to adapt and also like i moved back in with my parents because i didn't have an apartment um like i i had left all that behind um so yeah it was quite a a a switch up uh and also like here in the netherlands there had already been a lockdown there had already been a lot of covid measures and people were already fed up and and annoyed but i had experienced none of that so people around me were suddenly talking like oh we've we're already so sick of this and it's already been months and I had not experienced any measures because in Nicaragua everything was was free and open Mm. Um, so it's also just everyone around me was suddenly disgruntled at at everything and it was it was a very strange moment to to come home and suddenly try and find my way again Um, and it just such a a massive upheaval like I was yeah I was living free just traveling around and and not worrying about the future and and just living in a moment and suddenly yeah it it completely changed Um, yeah yeah, that's that's life as well like you gotta roll with the punches that's true exactly mate yeah well that's a beautiful spot to leave it we're on 59 minutes and 20 seconds so yellow thank you so much for um 
Man, it was great to catch up. I can't believe it took me so, yeah. so long to get in touch. Good to see your face too. I don't really always do the um, the calls via Zoom. Sometimes, you know, I do them other ways, but it's good to actually, um, good to see you.